my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. On Friday, I talked about health insurance options for 22. It's also the time of year for you to start thinking about what you're going to do for retirement next year. If you work for a big company, you're going to have to make those selections now. And so I've got some news on changes with retirement accounts for 22 and things I want you to think about in saving for your future. I've also talked about iBuyers. Two of the bigs in the country offer pad and open door. There are regional ones and the rest. I want to talk about the blow up that happened recently with iBuyers with Zillow ending up falling on the sword and getting out of iBuying. What that's going to mean to competition for your housing dollar when you want to sell your home and when it actually makes sense for you to look at an iBuyer. It's coming up later. So let's talk retirement. All right, I'm about to talk about something that for many people will be like, did I hit my head really hard? And the answer is, I may have hit my head really hard, but not about this. So you know I'm obsessive about you having financial independence. And one of the easiest on-ramps for that is for people who work for an employer that offers a 401k. Because with a 401k, you can shove enormous amounts of money aside for retirement. And if you haven't done that prior in your life and you're really into it now, it provides you the opportunity to essentially catch up by how much money you can contribute. And the new limits for 22 allow you to put in a ridiculous amount of money for most people to consider towards retirement, $20,500 you can put in there. But wait, there's more. If you're 50 and over, you can put in a huge amount more, what's known as catch-up. So you can put in 6500 beyond the 20500 total of $27,000 in a single year can go into your 401k, and it gives you the opportunity, if you're somebody who's really into financial independence, to build up that pile of money and build your personal wealth. And I'm going to use that word wealth because someone who's putting in that kind of money year after year after year and diversifying that money is going to end up wealthy. Now, then you've got the option at most employers, not all, of doing a Roth 401k or a traditional 401k. A Roth 401k, you put money in after tax, but then all through your working career, it grows tax-free. And then in retirement, what you've contributed and what it's earned, you spend it tax-free. The alternative with a traditional 401k that most people are familiar with is you get an upfront tax deduction, but the entire account becomes a ticking tax time bomb because when you retire, every last penny in that 401k, everything you contributed, everything it earns over the decades, subject to whatever the current rate of taxes might be. Now, 
we are in an unusually low cycle for tax rates in the United States. They are really, really favorable to income earners. And the most favorable I can recall pretty much in my lifetime, except for a time period in the late 1980s. And, but they're still really good now. But as happened after the late 80s, tax rates over time rose. And when they hit a low level like they are now, the odds favor that tax rates will rise in the future, which gives a big advantage to the Roth 401k. But here's the bigger advantage to the Roth 401k. And this is where I proved myself to be not a nice person. <laughs> I want you to contribute. If you're a max contributor, I want you to do the Roth version of the 401k because you're effectively putting in a great deal more money than you would if you're doing the traditional. If you're doing the Roth, you're putting after tax $20,500 or whatever amount you're doing versus doing before tax where the effective amount of money you're actually putting in is typically 25-30% less. Because remember, it's all going to be taxed later. So there's a method to my underhanded madness that effectively I'm getting you to save quite a bit more money to have later in life when I get you to bump up against the max after tax then bump up against the max before tax. By the way, the Roth limits, again, for Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs, not raised again this year. They're still at 6000 maximum. Congress needs to do something about that. It is ridiculous that the roughly half of people who work for employers that don't offer retirement accounts are boxed in at 6000 they can save per year for retirement. But people who work typically for larger employers, they're allowed to put in 20500 That disparity needs to be fixed. I did say they ra- see they raised the income limits for the Roths, though. That is true. That is true. So they inflation-adjusted. Think about that, the, the craziness. So they said, yeah, costs have gone up. So we're raising the amount of money you can earn and still be eligible for a Roth we're going to keep the cap on the Roth at 6000 because we hate the Roth. Why do they hate the Roth? Because they know that over time it's to your advantage to be in a Roth IRA where the money grows tax-free and you spend it tax-free. All right, I got some questions about investing. This one's from Garrett in Alaska. I, I'm 36. I opened a Roth two years ago and was married shortly after. Last year we filed our taxes jointly, but this year I wanted to try married filing separately. I read if you live together and make over $10,000 a year, as I do, you are not allowed to contribute anything to a Roth IRA. My question is, if I choose to file this way and have already contributed the full 6000 this year, what penalties will I face or what would happen to that money? So, uh, first of all, the reason the tax code is cruel towards people filing, uh, married filing separately for doing a Roth is they're trying to keep people from gaming the system who might not be eligible for a Roth based on joint family income, but if they strip out their income, suddenly they are. And so that's why they make it almost impossible under married filing separately to contribute to a Roth IRA unless 
you don't have a retirement plan available to you where you work, which is something a lot of people aren't aware of, that your Roth eligibility is only taken away by income in most cases if you have a retirement plan available to you at your place of work. So what happens with the money you've already contributed is that money can be reclassified as a non-deductible IRA. Now, this gets really wonky and complicated, and Congress has talked about taking away this ability to do this, but you can put that 6000 in a non-deductible IRA, and then there's a procedure they refer to as the backdoor Roth, which you can find online, where you then immediately reclassify the money later as Roth money. And you may owe a tiny tax bill on the conversion, but otherwise you're able to contribute the 6000 non-deductible, turn around and create it as Roth money. This is from Neva in Georgia. I'm 23, a 2021 college grad, a new podcast listener, and I'm ready to launch a Roth IRA. Good job. However, I'm struggling to determine how safe my money would be. I read that brokerage products are not FDIC insured. What would happen to my money if my provider were hacked a few years from now when I have a significant pile of money in my account? With frequent major hacks and data breaches, I'm nervous about moving money out of the protective arms of my credit union, although I'm aware my husband and I need to outrun inflation and in saving for retirement. Is one of your three favorite discounters safer than the others? How can I proactively maximize the security of my account once I start one? Okay, so I want to tell you at 23, I'm very impressed with the research you've done. I do want to explain, though, that FDIC insurance, which is federally backed, is not about hacking or anything like that. It's about the insolvency of a financial institution. Uh, brokerages have something that is not truly equivalent but sounds similar, the Securities Investors Protection Corporation, SIPC, that protects your assets supposedly. But in neither case does that have anything to do with hacks. So with hacks, banks and credit unions are required by federal law to restore your funds. Brokerages are not required to do so. And it's up to each one what their policy is on that. Of my favorite children, Schwab is the one that has done the most forthright job in stating straight out that they protect all the money in your account from hacks. Vanguard is kind of mealy-mouthed about it and does all this stuff. Well, it depends on what you were doing with your account, blah, 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 blah. And I've not seen a clear policy from Fidelity. The truth is the Congress needs to step up and pass simple legislation that brokerage accounts are protected from hacks just like bank and credit union accounts. As far as investing over the years, you will benefit much more from being in an investment account and know that the best way, the best defense for you against hacks is that you set up two-factor authentication plus whatever will come in the future and that you check your accounts routinely, regularly, which in my book would be once a month. Zach in Florida, my wife and I will have an adjusted gross income of about 95000 this year and 120 next year. Well, that's nice. That's right? a nice step up. <laughs> you're, uh, you're probably going to outrun that inflation depending on what, in what inflation rate people claim there is, yes. 
We're both W-2 employees, but we've started investing in real estate and derive about 5000 in AGI from that. We are 22 and 24, and I've always done our taxes. Is it time for me to hire an accountant? If so, what should I look for? Otherwise, what strategy should I look to reduce my AGI besides maxing out my Roth and 401k? So your Roth will not reduce your adjusted gross income. And sometimes people are lured into doing a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k instead of a Roth so that they can reduce their adjusted gross income. The good news, and I've been talking about how tax rates are, I just talked about that a few minutes ago, how they're unusually low in this historical cycle in the United States. So for you, at the income you're even going to step up to next year, your tax rates are still very, very favorable. You don't need to change how you do retirement accounts because of tax. Going back to your original question, do you need an accountant? So the question is involving your investing in real estate. Are you properly depreciating the property or whatever you're doing, whatever that real estate is, or do you have it on a proper depreciation schedule? Are you taking advantage of the tax benefits you have from owning real estate? If you're like, I don't know how to do that, that would be your answer that you want an enrolled agent or a CPA who does tax to start working with you. If you, at this point in your life, if you are properly accounting for the full tax advantages of the real estate you're involved in, you're probably fine for now continuing to do your own taxes. And speaking of real estate, straight ahead, Zillow, wow. I mean, Zillow blew it to a great cost to the company and impact potentially on you as a home buyer or a home seller. I'm going to fill you in on what Zillow was doing in iBuying and how iBuying affects your sale of your own home. That's coming up. For the last five years, I've been very excited by something that has been appearing more and more in the real estate market. It's known as iBuyers. It's where instead of you listing your home that you're selling the traditional way, where you interview agents, you try to come up with what a price should be on your home, you have to deal with open houses, don't know how soon your house will sell, how long it will take. iBuyers take that surprise element away from you by making you an offer for your home. And they then will typically send an inspector to check out to see if your home is worse than they expect, better than they expect. And then they'll uh, stick with their original offer. They may adjust it down or up based on what the inspection does more often, down a little. And this is a great way for a home seller to have more control over the selling process. You'll take less money for your home. Typically, not a lot less, but you'll take less money for your home. And you get to pick when you move out. Uh, you don't have to uh, have any disruptions in your life. You move when you want. They just give you a check. And the two fastest growing players in this nationally are OfferPad and Open Door. There are also a number of regional players that have popped up in particularly the South and the West, that are also offering iBuying. They're either offering straight-out iBuying 
or they're offering you a set price that they take your listing. If they don't sell your home in a period of time, typically 60 days, you then are able to have them buy the home for the pre-approved, pre-agreed to price. Now, I wanted to share with you what are the biggest iBuyer markets in the United States, and you'll see how heavily they are in the South and the West. Number one, Atlanta, followed by Phoenix, Dallas, Charlotte, Houston, Tampa, Orlando, Vegas, and Jacksonville. In fact, I'm looking through the whole list. This is a list that, ironically enough, was put out by Zillow earlier this year. There's not a single market outside the south or the west where iBuying is going on. And why is that? I ask you why. Krista, do you know why? No. I bet you do. You think about it. The reason is where you grew up, where you went to college in New England, how long have those houses been sitting there for the most part? Oh, forever. Forever. <laughs> and they're individual. They're not like, it's not like uh, developments in the South and the West where you have these big publicly traded builders that will buy up uh, hundreds or even into the thousands of acres and they put down a zillion homes that come in four to six different styles, maybe a little bit different exterior finishes. But for iBuyers, they can take uh, mathematical formulas and figure out within a tiny percent of right, Zillow proved not to stay within that tiny percent of right, which is why they're getting out of iBuying. They can, with real assurance, know, hey, we can buy this house from you for this amount of money, dress it up, put it back on the market, and get it sold in the next 45 days, and we'll make our margin. That's the idea of iBuying. So for a buyer, there's no difference. Whether you're buying from an iBuyer who then becomes a seller, or you're buying from someone who's using a traditional real estate agent, or a FISBO or for sale by owner. The big difference is for the seller. If I live in any of these big metro areas in the south and the west, and I'm in one of these typically uh, outside of metro areas, beltway, neighborhoods, I can get a price on the home and I'm out. It's kind of like the difference between in the old days, if you were selling a car when you weren't buying another one, you had to try to sell it yourself. And now you've got all these people that will buy a car from you even if you're not selling one including giving you prices instantly right online. It's the same kind of switch with housing. But a lot of houses, they'll say, hey, we're not interested in your home, go away. It has to fit their profile. So for a home seller, I think this is a worthy part of the process of trying to decide if you're going to hire an agent to market your house and sell it, or you're going to try to FISBO, or you also check the third tool in the toolbox, which is what the iBuyers may offer you. I travel enough around the country that I see billboards for local or regional real estate agents or players that are also offering iBuy kind of things. So 
you try all of the above to see what feels best to you. And are you willing to accept what may work out to be 6% less for your home to be able to know you're done with it? Or do you want to try to get the absolute top dollar for your home? If it's absolute top dollar, you're typically want to use an agent. Now, those of you that were lucky enough to sell your home to Zillow, as Zillow <laughs> offers, Zillow thought they were running a business, but it turned out they were running a charity. They were giving people way too much money on average buying their homes. And Zillow now is underwater on thousands of homes that they bought, and they are doing bulk sales around the country, and the buyers seem to be tilted towards companies that are not going to put those thousands of homes back for sale in the traditional purchase market, but are going to turn them into rental homes. An advantage for people who'd like to rent a home, a disadvantage for people who wish to buy a home. By the way, you sold with one of these, what, a couple years ago, one of your investment properties? Yeah. Did you see what percentage it sold over what you sold it to them for once they got in there? No, in that case, I did one of the things where it was a traditional sale for 60 days. And if it didn't sell by 60 days, then they would buy oh, okay. it at a prearranged price. And that home, uh, the first offer came in for it within minutes of it going into the multiple listing service. So I was really happy. They were happy. The buyer was happy. It worked out for everybody. And that's why a lot of the regional players don't I buy your home up front. They stand in as a backup if your home doesn't sell in that contracted period, typically two months. Okay, well, Jonathan in Missouri has this question. We are doing a cash-out refi of 44000 to rehab parts of our home. It won't cover everything we want done. We have the ability to take up up to 92000 Should we take out the max and invest the chunk we don't use or just take out what we need and hopefully save for the upcoming cosmetic upgrades? I figured we could invest between forty and 50000 if we took out the max. Definitely do not borrow to invest. Take the money you need to do the improvements to your home and avoid the temptation of trying to get a leverage score investing. Um, I'm very nervous about people, particularly with where stock markets are in the United States in particular, borrowing money in order to invest is too high a risk right now. This I don't like it normally anyway, but especially right now. This is from Liz in Alabama. My husband drove through our garage door and all the way to the back garage wall when his foot slipped off the brake and onto the gas pedal. All right, Liz, 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 Liz. Okay. Have fun at your husband's expense a little bit. He's fine. But know that this happens a lot, that oh, yeah. it's not at all unusual. What have you done? Oh, I've... Did you drive through your garage door? Not closed? through it. I've When it's been closed and I've I've thought I opened it and I'm back out of the garage, I've actually done that a couple of times when I've been in a rush and I've just backed into the garage door and I've done all sorts of stuff. So one time I was backing into our garage and the garage door decided after it had opened to close again mm. and went bam Ooh. to the roof of my car. 
And my family thought that was really funny. And you know what? They still tease me about that. Well, Liz says, fortunately, her husband is fine. However, their insurance company told us it would automatically total the car a 2003 Lexus SC430 convertible with 260,000 miles because the paint job is worth more than the car. The car needs to be repainted and the front has minor damage. We have not finalized the claim, nor have we received a quote yet. We wanted time to be smart about dealing with our insurance company before committing. This is a fun, attractive, sporty little car and we enjoy having it. How can we make sure we don't get ripped off in the process? Should we repair it and then sell it? There's a market for these high-performance convertibles. Your sage advice is greatly appreciated. Yeah, those older Lexus Sport Coupes have a significant following in the country among people who love uh, sports coupes of different brands, and that one has a significant following. So the insurance company wants to total it out, You can potentially accept some amount of cash from them and buy the vehicle from them, and you repair it, but that has such low miles on it, and I'm sure your husband has really loved that vehicle. If it were me, I would repair it and keep driving it because it is a rare find. It's a rare vehicle, and what the insurer would pay what they would say the cost of repainting it is may be less than what you would have to spend if you do it yourself in the free market. But that's just my opinion because I know that particular sports tube and I know how desirable people find it to be. And Vincent in Illinois says, I followed your link to the best antivirus deals. I had a big company for, for the antivirus software in the past year. I called them for a better rate got hung up on once and told that's the rate and hung up on again. Wow, I logged friendly. in. Yeah, I logged into my account, clicked the cancel button and a chat window popped up. I told them the $104.99 is too much. So they offered me 49.99. The retention department. Okay, Vincent, thank you so much for taking time to tell your story because whether it's your cell phone company, cable company, internet service in this case we're talking about a um, an antivirus product they all treat existing loyal customers like dirt that's just their business but when you say you're gonna bolt when you're gonna dump them you end up with a retention specialist who's given the authority to offer you a sweetened deal to keep you Disloyal customers are always better rewarded than loyal customers in modern American business. It's just the way it works. So I asked you at the uh, beginning to review us. And I want to thank Apple Podcast user Haiku5. I think it's Haiku5. Haiku5, sorry, for this recent review you posted on Apple Podcasts. When I was growing up, My dad was always a huge fan of Clark, still is to this day. I've heard Clark's voice all through my childhood. Sorry about that. Well, now I'm in my 40s, and I listen to podcasts more than I listen to music. So you become your father is what you're telling me. I've I've found Clark's podcast to be just about the most refreshing thing 
short of a bottle of chilled Pedialyte? Really? <laughs> it's like having a sit down with the Bob Ross of finance or the Mr. Rogers of money. Clark just seems like such a wholesome fellow. He is. And in this day and age, I think we'd use a lot more of that. Thanks, Clark, for pretty much being a nerdy uncle that I grew up with. <laughs> It can now relate to in my adult years. It would be better if I took my glasses off. It won't be as nerdy. And thank you for your Clark Stink segments, wherein you demonstrate true humility and a genuine dedication to education. I think that's one of the most profound and enlightening segments of your show. And uh, thank you for all those nice words. Haiku 5. Haiku 5. I'm happy to be your nerdy uncle. Put my glasses (laughs) back on. And I hope you continue to enjoy the show.